IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums and we hash out trends. In this episode we're going to be doing a deep dive into one of the most significant indie acts of the 2000s, Animal Collective. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? You know, Steve, with with each passing year, I come to terms with the fact that I'm just not the person and definitely not the music writer that I used to be. I, I, as you, I'm sure you know, a new Kings of Leon album is dropping uh, today. And, you know, my approach to that in the years past would have been, okay, who can I pay me to just write about this and just shit all over it? And I don't know. Can I just say quick that like, I think a lot of our listeners would have no idea that a new Kings of Leon album. I didn't really either. Like, I'm like, Oh, look at that. They're, uh, they're still going. Uh, and what's it, what's it called? I I don't know. (laughs) I, I honestly don't know, dude. I was about to say like sometime around midnight, but that's either like one of their old album titles or like that Airborne Toxic Event song. Like maybe I'm just getting like bands I shit on in 2008 conflated. But, you know, like I actually as as little information as I know about the title, like I approach this album thinking like not in the usual sense, but more like, is it possible that like Kings of Leon actually have some bangers when you think about it? Like, could they be? one of those bands that we've talked about like being resuscitated through like a greatest hits. Now I get the feeling you're the type to say that like, aha shake heartbreak. That first album was like, actual good. Not just like, you know, kind of that's cool. their second album, by the way, that's their second youth and young manhood is their first. The new album is called when you see yourself. Oh, and um, <laughs> I was talking about uh, Kings of Leon on Twitter this week. And a uh, follower of mine pointed out that every Kings of Leon album title save for one, is five syllables. Youth and Young Manhood, Aha Shake Heartbreak, Because of the Times, uh, Come Around Sundown. They had an album called Walls that came out in 2016 that like no one remembers. It's like they're immersed. I certainly don't. They're immersed like in a pool of of milk on the cover. It's like a very unusual cover. And then the new one is When You See Yourself, that's five syllables. I will admit to being a, a... I've written about Kings of Leon in the past. I enjoy their records. I once compared them to uh, that band on Parks and Recreation that Chris Pratt is in <laughs> called Mouse Rat. Like I think they're they're like the real life Mouse Rat. I mean, oh, look, man. I like bombastic arena rock. Oh, that, yeah. Uh, it's a guilty pleasure for me. I think they started out as you know a Southern Strokes. Like, that was their concept. They come off quite well and meet me in the bathroom. I will say that. They do. Their documentary actually is is pretty entertaining too. I I, I and I can't remember the name of that, <laughs> but that's a good documentary. It's it, it works. They're an interesting, you know, because it's three brothers and then there's a cousin and they have this religious background, but you also see them smoking weed on private planes yeah. as they go from tour to tour, tour date to tour date. So uh, you know, if you are a fan of uh, you know unself-aware rock bands. Uh, Kings of Leon, to me, is a band that you can't help but love. I mean, the reason people were talking about this record this week is that it is uh, going to be the first rock record ever to be released as uh, as this form of Bitcoin. It's like... It's Non-fungible non- token. Which, hold on. That's also five... That's five syllables. They should have just named it that. Then I would remember it. I think that's six... To- that's that's six syllables. Oh, fungible fuck. Oh, it's early. It's, it's early, Steve. Because <laughs> I, I, well, I made that joke on Twitter that like they could have called the album "Non Fungible Token" and I would have believed it. But then this uh, this follower pointed out that that has six syllables and not five, so it would have violated this sort of weird Illuminati thing that Kings of Leon <laughs> have uh, with their with their album titles. Um, and for those who don't know, I, I you know. I, I'm totally ignorant uh, when it comes to anything sort of cryptocurrency or anything related to that. Like a non-fungible token or an NFT, apparently it's this, um, it's like a collectible form of digital art, essentially. Yes. And I'm I'm probably being reductive in describing it this way, but to me, it, it kind of sounds like the vinyl version 
of an MP3 or a streaming music, you know, a, a more high-end version of, of something that people use in a utilitarian kind of way that instead of just streaming a record that you're going to buy this NFT of the Kings of Leon record and with the thought that you can resell this in 10 years for, you know, thousands of dollars and retire to the Caribbean uh, as a rich person. I mean, I guess that's the idea with this. Um, I don't know. I think for, I think we're, we're, we're kind of burying the lead here in that it's being, if we want to talk about like a band being not self-aware, uh, they are releasing this apparently on uh, the chain smokers like blockchain or something like that. Like it has something to do with and it has something to do with chain smokers, which, you know, they might just kind of be the kings of Leon of their particular realm. But I tried reading so much about M- NFTs yesterday. Ariel Gordon, uh, I call her a friend of the pod. Uh, she wrote something on Stereo Gum, which is a nice explainer. And like I read it three times and I still don't quite get what it's about other than like Grimes is super into it, which, um, you know, is pretty much kind of all I need to know about like the intersection (laughs) of like technology and like, is this thing like the future or is this something that will just like, you know, be appealing to the super rich? Um, I mean, it kind of takes the heat off me to listen to a new Kings of Leon album if I can't, you know, actually own it for less than $20,000. I mean, don't you love the mental image of Grimes and Elon, Elon Musk sitting back and listening to Kings of Leon in, you know, their uh, mansion on the moon? Yeah. You know, I, 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 like, I assume they live on the moon in, like, some sort of sprawling bubble pod. Gosh. Uh, and they're kicking back, listening to the new uh, KOL record, and, uh, you know, just luxuriating in Caleb Falwell's whiskey-coated draw. Oh, God, man. I, I like... Just a little bit of history. In 2007, I worked in a, um, I worked at a talent agency that repped a lot of like, uh, at the time, like Warped Tour type bands. And there was this one guy, the rock guy, the rock assistant, listened to the first two songs of King, like, what's that album called with Knocked Up on it? Um, that's on the, he listened, because of the times. Uh, because of the times. He listened to be, he listened to the first three songs of that album and only the first three songs of that album every single day. Like when I got in, it would be knocked up, knocked up. He never got to McFearless, which is <laughs> that's a good song. I mean, that's the thing about uh, Kings of Leon is that they're a band that I can make fun of, and yet. There's a very good chance that on uh, some night this weekend, I'm going to drink some whiskey and I'll end up like tweeting about how much I love the Kings of Leon record because I'm just in that, that, <laughs> that Saturday night frame of mind where I've had a couple pops and it'll just sound perfect to me. <laughs> um, one thing we, I want to bring up too before we get to our mailbag segment is uh, the, the new St. Vincent record. Uh, was announced, I guess it was probably last Friday, the day that our last episode came out. Yeah. It's called Daddy's Home. Apparently, it's a record inspired by uh, 70s rock. And uh, St. Vincent has done some interviews about this record this week. And uh, there was a headline in Rolling Stone. It says, St. Vincent's Family Ties with her new album, Annie Clark finally comes to terms with her father's white-collar prison experience, all thanks to the power of, the healing power of 70s rock. Um, Hmm. Which, I love this narrative. This is such a... (laughs) I love it. This is awesome. This is like one of the best pre-release album narratives that we've had in a long time. Get out of here with your quarantine album. Get out of here with your Trump. Yes. You know... Annie Clark. Post-Trump, new buy, like, yeah. Yeah, get that out. Like, kick uh, that to the curb. St. Vincent is leveling up with her uh, white-collar prison record, uh, which... Now, look, I, can we just say, like, I think it's... Well, I mean, I'm sorry that her, like, dad went to jail. Like, I think that's, you know, that's... I, I can say that's, like, that probably is a bad experience, but... Like her, it, what I what I found odd is that it happened. Like I was under the assumption this happened when she was a kid. This happened like in 2010, right? And and, and just to be clear, her dad is a stockbroker who uh, was sentenced to 12 years in prison for fraud. And 
I don't know oh. what that entails exactly, but usually that involves that bad. <laughs> like ripping off investors in, in some way. You know, typically, that's what that means. So, you know, again, yeah, I agree with you. It would be traumatic if your father was sent to prison. However, again, I want to cast aspersions, but it doesn't <laughs> seem like the most sympathetic person uh, to be sent to prison ever. Well, uh, yeah, definitely not. But also you can kind of think of it as like, you know, the sins of the father type thing where... I don't know, like, you can see, like, maybe, like, the disconnect between, like, yourself as an artist and, like, you know, someone's dad. Because I think there's a lot of talk in, like, indie rock about, like, oh, you do realize this person has, like, a rich dad, right? That's more in, like, the kind of DIY realm. But I think I'm more interested in, like, the 70s rock element. Yeah, the healing power of 70s Uh, rock. The healing powers. Like, what what 70s rock, though? Are we talking about, like, Black Oak, Arkansas? Or are we talking about, like... That would have been incredible. I actually would have liked to... uh, I get the feeling it's not Foghat. It's not Foghat, Foghat, She's not busting out, like, the Jimmy Page double neck guitar, I don't think. I mean, it it sounds like this is more of, like like, a David Bowie type thing maybe the artier like like strands of uh you know new york 70s music so yeah, that that very that very under that very underappreciated and underexplored uh era of music you know i i you know i just want to say that like i'm excited for this album because of this narrative i want to see how this unfolds yeah. i would love to see saint vincent double down and do a promotional concert like at a white collar prison you know johnny cash style yeah you know instead of at straight arrested development yeah <laughs> you know, instead of at like it really is arrested development it is you know? yeah her, her dad's jeffrey tambor uh definitely <laughs> no I, I just love the idea of like saint vincent playing in this uh medium security prison for like middle-aged uh you know financiers who like rip people off well uh and she played coachella a few years back so it's sort of more or less the same thing <laughs> Boo. take it nah, i like that, actually, that i like it, that taking the coachella shot yeah I, yeah i know well, the thing about that is that this was the I think this might have been, it was 19 or so, I think it was after mass seduction, but like this was the year that um, for all the people like my age who went to Coachella were taught, were just in shock at like how few people <laughs> were in the crowd when like she played and when like War on Drugs played and like uh, you, you kind of get, you got like a real sense of like what it means to be like a popular rock act at the time. So I'm, I'm interested in this album if only because like, with every St. Vincent album, like, she reinvents, like, her image and comes up with a new narrative. And it's, it, like, that leads people to say, oh, she's, like, the new Bowie or whatever. But, like, I'm always interested to see, like, how pop, like, how anecdotally popular this artist is. I've heard, like, more times than, we'll talk about this more, obviously, when the album comes out. But I've never heard more people say, like, about an artist, like, I admire them, but I can't, I, I don't really listen to their music much. I mean... Uh, what what's her biggest like i'm really curious like what would you say is like her biggest hit you know that's a good question there's no song in particular that that jumps out to me and i and i have to say i'm in the same camp where i i'm fine by her but i don't her albums leave me a little cold i i've seen her live and i've enjoyed her more live than on her records she is in this interesting like part of her career too because mass seduction i feel was received it was like a mixed reaction and then she was involved in that was it was i i don't i feel like there were people that loved that record and those who really didn't like that record do you feel like people huh. you feel like it was more on the positive side oh no it's definitely on the positive side like okay. i think it like maybe there was like it maybe not to the extent of the previous ones but by the time the year ends rolled around it was there it was on every single one well like th- critically yeah but I, I guess i mean in terms of just regular people, like people talking about that album. I, I feel like there was <laughs> the polarization on that as opposed to, you know, Strange Mercy, records like that. But, yeah. but she did that, and then she did the Slater-Kinney album, which was very interesting, like how that whole thing turned out. And now she's doing this. Um, yeah, I don't know if... Jack Antonoff involved with this. Uh, that's a good question. I don't know. I haven't, I, I, haven't, I haven't dug deep into it. I'm curious to hear it. But but just as a as an observer of the industry, as a commentator on music, I get excited when there are uh, sort of shaky album narratives. It, it just makes me excited. I'm like, oh, okay, this this could 
not end well or it could end great, you know? Like we're, like we're there, there's genuine risk here. Like we're we're upping the stakes. So I'm I'm curious to see how it unfolds. Uh, and of course, yeah, we'll we'll be talking more about that uh, once we get closer to the album. Um, let's get to our mailbag segment. This question comes from Ryan. He's in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Thank you, Ryan, for writing in. He says hello, Ian and Stephen. I am a relatively new listener to the podcast and have been enjoying it very much. I really enjoy listening to your your reviews of various albums and the history you provide about bands. Thank you. I do have a question for you, however. What is with all of the infiltration of pop music slash top 40 into music sites and publications? Is it simply for traffic to get readers who would not otherwise look at websites such as Pitchfork? The music is terrible. All the hype and garbage surrounding it is very fatiguing. It's also disappointing to see these publications in various podcasts. Unfortunately, IndieCast is not immune. Uh-oh. Delve so heavily into these trash artists, artists is in quotes, and music. Who cares who Taylor Swift or Lana Del Rey is beefing with? Who cares what Billie Eilish thinks about anything? Ugh. Thank you, and keep up the wonderful work on the podcast. P.S. I would love to see this on a mailbag segment at some point. Ryan, your wish has come true. <laughs> Here uh, you go. Um, so the short answer I think I would give to Ryan, like to the who cares question, is a lot of people care. <laughs> like yeah. a, a lot more people <laughs> care about Taylor Swift and Billie Eilish and other huge pop stars. A lot more people care about that than they care about indie rock or a lot of the artists that we talk about on this show. That's just a reality of the situation. Um, you know, I was drawn to this question because we get a lot of questions throughout the week. I was drawn to this because I think what Ryan is like saying in this, uh, in this question is something that like in music critic circles, people just dismiss out of hand, you know, as being closed minded at this point. And, but I think that he is uh, articulating something that I feel like a, a lot of people probably agree with and I think what he is uh, bothered by uh, is something that we've talked about on this show, which is that there used to be this level of stratification in media, like where you could have a site like Pitchfork that only covered indie music and they ignored pop music. And there was an understanding that they were writing for a specific audience and that people who weren't in that audience weren't going to pay attention to what they were doing. And we don't have that internet anymore like the internet has changed from that has changed i mean that was the internet that that you and i experienced when we first started writing for music sites on the internet and it doesn't exist anymore and i think there are positives and negatives to that um a positive would be that if you're inside a walled garden you miss a lot of the rest of the world and it sort of perverts your uh, perspective and it's good to have a wider view of, of what's going on, certainly in music. The negative part is that it's really hard for indie acts to compete with huge pop stars. And if you have a situation like where everyone is in the same pot, it just seems that pop stars are going to win that battle uh, every single time. So I don't agree with what Ryan is saying um, at all. But I, I think I understand where he's. I think I understand where he's coming from. Yeah. I mean, uh, like, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I grew up with uh, Philadelphia sports talk radio in the '90s, so I get like a real like, <laughs> yo, this is Sal from Up and Dobby, and, and you know, Angelo. Like, I, I just don't understand how the Eagles don't trade Coy Detma for Ty Brady. Okay, like, <laughs> what, 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 what? Nick Sirianni needs to do it, like that sort of thing. Where and like you get that call in like. April. When um, so, you know, I appreciate the kind of like, um, I don't know, shit posting energy of it all. And like, you're right in that th- th- this expresses a sentiment that I think is a subtext of a lot of what's going on uh, in the discussions we have. I just think that very rarely can you frame it in a way or word it in a way that doesn't make you sound like, you know, someone who just dismisses pop out of hand. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it, you know, like, it, it's funny because, like, even, like, the, the glory days, like, 2005 for me, I guess, which, um, you know, might not be the glory days to someone who came of age in the 90s. Like, in 2005, if you want to, like, think of that as, like, the year of, like, Sufjan and the National, like, really uh, coming to the fore. Like, there were still controversies about, like, pop back then, too. I remember, you know, Tom Bryan will talk about this a lot about how, 
uh, he got a lot of shit back in the day for like the fact that we they were covering like you know Kanye and like you know Young Jeezy and, instead of like the rap that was considered okay for like indie people to cover like you know any of MF Doom's projects or like De La Soul or whatever. So I mean, this conversation happens like all the time in just different sort of forms. But you know, the one thing I'll point out is that you know over the years, um, you know, as I've like wrestled with the fact that you know the music that i tend to gravitate towards gets it it's tougher for it to really break through um the thing that i feel is like the biggest waste of time and the thing that i always regret doing is like ex- like projecting like intentions upon people like assuming that people are like i don't know conspiring in some way like the idea that like oh they're covering this just for traffic like nah i think what it is is that more of the people who write at these places now like genuinely like that music you know um if you've ever you know worked at a music publication you know like it's very difficult for them to get anything together let alone some sort of conspiracy to like hype up certain pop artists but I just think we're like, yeah, like you were saying, the internet from our era doesn't really exist and anymore. And I think that like the internet that we're going to be talking about with like Animal Collective, where like Animal Collective was, you know, the, the kind of center of the universe, that that's kind of an anomaly. If you look back at like the 90s or the 80s, you know, with Rolling Stone being the kind of main driver, like that was like Michael Jackson, Prince, Madonna. Uh, those were the artists that were being covered at the time. And I think just generally speaking, uh, the, the, the arc of the universe bends towards pop. So like anytime you try to, I mean, it's kind of a defeatist idea that like anytime you try to resist pop, you're just going to end up looking like you're on the wrong side of history. So, well, and, uh, and, and I'll say this too, that if you go to pitchfork or stereo gum or any of the big music websites on any given day take pitchfork for example i think they still do four album reviews every day and for the most part those are indie albums that they're writing about yeah. uh and if you go to stereo gum yeah they they'll do stories on the new taylor swift song or on billy eilish but like 80 to 90 percent of what they're doing is on indie stuff. And the thing is, is that, you know, people that complain that like Pitchfork is focusing too much on pop music. It's because those are the stories that they're noticing because that's what everyone else notices. People gravitate to the stories on the biggest artists and they act as if all the other stuff isn't there, which sort of explains like why these sites in a way are covering the big people, because if they were only to do indie music, like pitchfork would not exist. That's just the fact. And I think if if you are uh, upset that uh, indie sites cover pop music too much, then you need to be clicking on stories about bands that you've never heard of. Yeah. You know, I like I really wish more people would do that. I understand why they don't because we're all busy people. Mm-hmm. We all have a lot of things in our lives, and and to read about a band that you've never heard of, it's it's an investment of time, and sometimes mm-hmm. you don't have that time. But that does explain, I think, along with what you're saying, I do think there is also a genuine love of, of pop artists. But you also can't deny that, <laughs> I mean, these sites do need to generate traffic. They do need, yeah. you know, to keep the lights on in some respects. So, yeah, you are going to do maybe a superfluous news item on some pop star on a meaningless conflict that they're having because, you know, people are going to read it and maybe that will make it possible uh, or, or make it more easy to do the stories on like lesser known artists that aren't going to get any traffic. And here's the thing. It's like if we're talking about, I think what people maybe miss is, um, you know, back in the 2000s, how like you know a review or something like that could elevate a band from like literally nothing to uh, something in the public eye. I mean, that's probably happening on TikTok or like message boards like I mean, that's happening somewhere. It's just not happening, you know, within the same, um, you know, framework that we've experienced, you know, since the 70s or, you know, because like the music industry is just very different uh, now. And Well, and, and, and for every like one band 
that was like elevated by a record review, there's like a hundred bands that got great reviews that, yeah. that nobody read. Yeah. And that did nothing happen to them. Believe me, so, I, know, again, I write about a lot of them. <laughs> right. So, you know, again, uh, be the change you want to see in the world. That's right. You know, support those uh, unsung bands as much as you can. And I think if more people do that, there's going to be more coverage of those bands. Uh Speaking of unsung bands, yes, let's talk about Animal Collective, a band that was not unsung uh, for many years, but now I feel like is maybe a little unsung, and that's why we want to talk about them in this episode. Yes, uh, let's give a little background on this on this band. They uh, formed in uh, two thousand three. Uh, they're from Baltimore, Maryland, an experimental pop collective, as the name suggests. Uh, the members include A.D. Tear. Panda Bear, Deacon, and Geologist. Those are, of course, not their given names. Uh, but we'll just call them by their nicknames. Because yeah. we are talking about Animal Collective, after all. Um, so Animal Collective really hit their stride in the mid-aughts. Uh, I think uh, the album that people uh, like really kind of came to this band, like the record that they heard, was Sung Tongs, which came out in 2004. That was preceded by another record called Here Comes the Indian in 2003, which was... I get... It's now called Ark. What's that? Now called Ark. They they changed the name. It's now called Ark. Okay, I didn't know that. That that that's a that's a weird thing to do. Yeah, that was very 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 recent. Because like I was I was th- I was like reading back on that, and like if you look on spot, like I remember they made a um they that was also when the uh, record label One Little Indian changed its name. So they changed the name. Like if you look at it on uh, streaming, it's now called Ark. Okay. Well, we've got that settled. It will- We'll call it Here Comes the Indian slash Ark. I feel like most people know it as Here Comes the Indian. So I'm sorry, Animal Collective. Yeah. We're going to refer to it as that. Um, they went on this run of albums uh, that were very critically acclaimed and also you know, pretty popular, at least like in the indie world. Uh, and it all culminates with their 2009 album, Meriwether Post Pavilion, uh, which at the time seemed like the record that was going to make Animal Collective this mainstream band. I remember I saw them at a like pretty large theater on that tour, and... Uh, it's insane to think now, but it just seemed like, oh yeah, maybe Animal Collective could actually almost be this like pop rock band. Um, but of course that did not happen, uh, as we entered the 2010s. And, you know, I think that was due to factors that we've talked about on this show, uh, you know, changes in the indie music scene, but also I think Animal Collective themselves, um, ran out of that artistic momentum that they really had in the aughts. Uh, they've yeah. uh, overall put out 10 albums. Uh, their most recent was Painting With, which came out in 2016. Uh, the uh, the members of the group have put out various solo albums. Uh, Panda Bear and Avi Tear both had records that came out in 2019. Uh, I haven't heard what they're doing next. I assume there may be a record this year or maybe next year. Um, but uh, you know, we've talked for many weeks now about doing an Animal Collective episode we're finally doing it now. And um, I feel like why, why I wanted to do this episode is that, to me, this is the first band that I think of when we talk about aughts-era indie and how it's faded in importance over time. Like, this is a group that I feel like was so important for about four or five years. And my sense now is that they have no presence in the discourse whatsoever. I actually think that they're more influential <laughs> than they get credit for. Um, and, we, and we'll talk about that in this episode. But I, I, I'm i just really curious, I guess, about like, wh- like how do people think about Animal Collective? Is this a group that has transcended its generation? Are like younger people getting into this this band? I don't have a strong sense of that, but I, I could be wrong. I, I, I don't know. Do you get a sense that people care about animal collective in 2021 uh well clearly we do but as far as like young kids go i mean i think it was i part of the reason i think it was good to do a like a reminiscence now like it's you know not the 10-year anniversary of like any animal collective album save i guess for like panda bears tomboy which might be their last like from the from that universe the last like really uh, consensus acclaim but if you look at like indie rock in like 2011 like the the kind of end of the 2000s and the beginning of the 2010s like there was so much stuff influenced by them at the time like um ben h allen the producer who did mary arthur post pavilion he did a lot of records that year 
like you got bands like Braids, like Plural Braids, not the emo band Braids, who were influenced by them. And like I think that was just like kind of the peak. Uh, and there was nowhere to go but down from there. And here, here's the thing, man. Like, I don't know if any indie band is really popular uh, amongst, um, you know, ki- like kids these days. Because one of the shifts that we've seen um, is that it's more a personality-driven genre now. Um, like most, of, like like uh, Adam Levine said, there are no bands anymore. Um, and great rock critic, by the way. Adam Levine's one of my favorite rock critics. Yes. Uh, I wish he would stop doing Maroon 5 and just write think pieces. I think that would be incredible. Yeah, that's where the money's at. Um, for yeah, and for Animal Collective, like it, 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 it signifies this type of like, like you were saying, this um, idea of like an an idea of a band that could be like the center of an indie rock universe, where like every single thing that like they do is considered headline news, and also like. Um, in the 2000s, um, you know, indie rock being kind of synonymous with like art rock. Like, I mean, they come from like a really uh, abrasive noise rock, freak folk, whatever background. And I think that they are so tied to their era because when you look at like Meliwether Post Pavilion as like the triumph uh, that it was in 2009, it was kind of seen as like a triumph for like indie culture as well. Like, look at like, Look at look at where we've come, you know. Look at this band that started out in two thousand one with, um, you know, Spirit They've Gone, Spirit They've Vanished, and uh, leading up to a point where they can make a an album about a you know big outdoor amphitheater and like actually maybe play there. Um, but nowadays it just seems a bit antiquated. Like I think that there's they seem like they would be a band that like kids would be into because they are very much vibey. I think they were really, really early adapters as far as mainstreaming uh, fish and the grateful dead, not just as like as aesthetics, but like more the, their live shows were like always unpredictable. Like you would almost never get them playing the album. They just released. They would always be workshopping stuff from the new LP. And I think that was like, if you want to look at like the influence that they have now, that might be the main thing that they've done. Also, if you look at like, I think this gets into a bigger conversation of like whether Panda Bear solo records are more, um, you know, influential in the band because after Person Pitch in 2007, everyone was buying samplers. I mean, like it is really hard. <laughs> it is really hard to overstate like how much music was shaped in the image of Person Pitch after it came out. Yeah, I was going to say that I think that if you make a case for Animal Collective being influential in 2021, it's what you're saying there, that they came after that Return of the Rock movement of the early 2000s with the Strokes and Interpol, all these bands looking you know, into the past, you know, 20th century, New York cool, that whole thing. And Animal Collective was this band that, um, you know, they, they weren't this conventional guitar-based drums band. It was like, we, we can be a rock band, but really not resemble what rock music is conventionally looked at, you know, being. And uh, I think that I think inspired people, even people that, may, that maybe don't even know who Animal Collective is, they're sort of a um, uh, influence through osmosis, you know, that they handed down to people that they showed that you could do that. Um, where they don't seem influential to me is the abrasiveness of their music. And, and we'll get into this as we talk about some of their albums. I think that there's moments on their records that are incredibly beautiful and, and soothing, but they also have a lot of elements that are, uh, you know, if, if, if you're not on their wavelength, they can be pretty obnoxious and, and, and grating. And, and, you know, we've talked about this on this show, about how we yearn in a way for more bands to do things like that, to risk alienating people uh, because it seems like things now are awfully uh, easy listening, you know, like even records I like, you know, I'm not hearing a lot of music that is abrasive or I'm that might run the risk of me not liking it immediately, you know, Uh, and animal collective, maybe they just benefited from a time when um, you were forced to listen to things more than once or it wasn't so easy to go to the next thing because there wasn't streaming music at that time uh i don't know um but 
you had an, I, I, I want to go back to your point too about the personality driven aspect of indie now because I think that's a good point that if you look at the biggest indie stars now there is a cult of personality around them where uh, people uh, feel like they're relating to this person or they're looking up to this person that but there's some investment in their personal narrative and with Animal Collective and a lot of those bands of, of that ilk you don't really know who these guys are and you don't even know what they're saying in their, in their records. It's just like this sound collage. You're along for the sonic journey. Yeah. You're, you're like around, like I think with animal collective, they're a band. I think of like along the lines of liars or deer hunter where you're a lot like, I mean, obviously like, you know, Bradford Cox, huge personality, but like there was exciting to see like where musically they might go next. I think, you know, um, as a, like, it was a, it was a time like animal collective. We're going to be talking about like, Specifically from like 2001 Spirit, they've Spirit, they're gone to at Meriwether Post Pavilion. I mean, they were making such profound shifts in their sound from like album to album, and it was just really exciting to follow along. Um, likewise, as you were saying, you, you it took some time to absorb it. I mean, like Sung Tongs, I hated it when I first heard it, but um, you know, the. I guess the hype around it or just, um, you know, the lack of availability, it like really forced me to like work through things. And, um, you know, I'm glad I did because gosh, I can't, it, it, being an indie rock fan in 2000 would be kind of terrible if you hate an animal collective, you know, because <laughs> like if it, it, not just their music, but like also so much of the stuff that surrounded it. But I mean, I think we're getting the sense that like our favorite animal collective is like the, Oh four, oh five type error, right? Yeah, I think so. And th- there might be a conversation to be had about like whether Meriwether Post Pavilion at this point is underrated, because I, <laughs> which is kind of a weird thing to say, because that is the most celebrated Animal Collective record. But you know, you yes. and I were talking about our favorite Animal Collective records, and like that wasn't our pick. You know, neither one of us picked that, and no. neither one of us put that second or maybe even third. Um, and I wonder. To what degree that's just driven by that record being so celebrated in its moment. Yeah. And in a way, because Animal Collective couldn't follow up on it, is that record in some way considered a failure retrospectively, you know, or retroactively, you know, that, um, that, you know, they didn't herald, you know, Animal Collective didn't bring about the indie rock revolution, you know, the indie rock revolution. Yeah. I mean, I, it was more like the end of it. Yeah. You know? and, and, I, and I do think in a lot of ways, what turned a lot of people off from indie rock was that there were a lot of groups that sounded like Animal Collective. I think Animal Collective in a way became a shorthand for people who didn't like indie rock and felt like, well, does it just sound like this? It's just people yelping into microphones and, you know, beating Tom drums on, on at the, at the foot of the yeah. stage. And what is this obnoxious <laughs> shit? You know, I, I think for as many people that were thrilled by animal collective, there were just as many, if not more who were totally turned off by them, which is another thing I, yeah. I, I like about them. I like that polarization that, you know, that because it, it speaks to the risks that they took in their music, that they were willing, uh, you know, to, to go into areas that were not going to be immediately likable to everybody. Um, but yeah, I just wonder to what degree animal collective helped bring about the end <laughs> of that era. Like, because they ultimately were not a transcendent band. You know, I think a lot of people thought they could be with that record, but they weren't. What do you mean by transcend that, that? That they could like get out of indie rock and and be this massive group. That they could be a band that could break through in a way that other groups have come out of the underground in the past. I think there was this weird notion, which again seems insane now to think that anyone could have thought this. But I I, I even felt like I thought this at the time that like wow, Animal Collective they're they're gonna like revolutionize the mainstream. Like this record is poppy enough. This record is poppy enough to appeal to pop fans, but it's also kind of weird. You know, it, it's a little bit of both. Um, but it was, you know, but it, it didn't do that. And I don't think that's the fault yeah. of Animal Collective necessarily. I'm yeah. just saying, I feel like that's what happened. Yeah, I mean, when we talk about like transcendent, and we like, I, I think it's a good framing with like pop, the pop music we talk about. Like, Animal Collective is still, I would say, like a super popular band, especially when you kind of consider where they came from. I mean, like they were, they they were. If you listen to Arc, I'm going to call it Arc. 
um, like they were a contemporary of like Black Dice and like Liars and like those bands that you would hear people talk about, like, you know, New York kids like wearing trucker hats, drinking Sparks and like doing Coke, like, you know, in 2002. And the fact that they, you know, had a hit on the level of My Girls, like that people played it at their weddings. Like, yeah, I think they transcended like as far as it, but they definitely hit a ceiling. Like they were not Vampire Weekend. They were not Arcade Fire. Um, you know, if we're talking about, or they weren't the national, they weren't at that level of bands. But I think that, you know, to, to the degree that they did get popular was like, just, I don't know. It, it just gave me a lot of hope, I guess. Right. That, uh, you know, bands could like, you know, evolve from, uh, something like feels, which, um, or even that like feels could be, you know, people could like really rally around a record like that. I think that's our collective favorite, right? Yeah, I was going to say, there's probably people listening to this episode that aren't that familiar with Animal Collective. They're looking for an entry point. And you and I were talking, and we actually, yeah, we landed on our, on the same favorite record, which is Feels. Yeah. From, from 2005. Like, why would you recommend Feels? Uh, it's obviously the most emo Animal Collective record. I mean, it's named <laughs> Feels, for Christ. I mean, but, but, but by that point, like, I think there's a halo around everything from 2005 for me. It was just a really beautiful time, but, uh, this is the record that represents to me the culmination of their like earliest phase of like being kind of um, this combination of like folk and ambient and also like noise together. Um, Sung Tongs is a massive leap in its own right, but there's still like those parts that you said are a little grating. Like I remember I would see uh, when people like want to make fun of Animal Collective, they'll bring up like live videos of them playing Wee Tigers or things like that, where it is like you know, the, uh, the floor toms and so forth, but feels to me, it's like, it's all, it, it, it almost to me resembles more like a boards of Canada record or like Aphex twin where it's just almost beauty for beauty's sake. And, um, I think like, it's just more enveloping than, um, sung tongs, which gets a little bit abrasive in ways. And it, it's, I think, the culmination of that before they switch to Strawberry Jam, which is their first record on, I believe, Domino. And, I mean, that's, like, one of my favorites as well. But that, like, begins, like, the more pop sort of uh, phase of Animal Collective. So, I mean, Feels, to me, is really... And also, it's not quite as overexposed as Merryweather Post or Strawberry Jam. So, you know, whenever I come back to it, it always just sounds fresh. Yeah, I... The thing I love about Feels is that I'm a sucker for albums where you have a lot of like upbeat, energetic songs on the first half, and then you have oh, this yeah. <laughs> really slow and pretty and almost ambient second half. And um, one of the greatest albums of all time for me is Remain in Light by Talking Heads, and that has that same structure. Right. And there are, I think, some parallels between Feels and, and Remain in Light in the sense that, you know, I don't... I don't know if there's like an explicit like world music influence on Animal Collective, but there I is. Think there is. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I think that there are some shared influences in that regard. Um, but yeah, just the structure of that record I think works really well. Where um, I think the first half is that quintessential thing that you associate with Animal Collective: this very kinetic, upbeat. Mm-hmm. Um, almost chaotic type sound. Although I think what's important yeah. to note about Animal Collective is that for all the experimentation that they did, that at their best, they did also write really catchy songs. And ultimately, when, when you look when you look at their 2010s work, I think that's what uh, abandons them. Like Centipede, uh, Hurts, and uh, Painting With, I think the songs just aren't there. Like they, the, the, the sound is there, the experimentation is there, but the, the hooks and almost the anthemic quality that you get from the best Animal Collective songs aren't there. But then the second half of Feels is my favorite music that they've ever made. Um, just Ah, oh, Banshee beat, man. Beautiful uh, Lock Raven beautiful song oh, good too. Uh, yeah. and and i think that's an underrated aspect of animal collective that they're not just this you know squealing banging you know uh polarizing band that they could actually make music that was really soothing and beautiful um that you could uh that you could vibe out to you know if you just like wanted to hear something pretty so i feel like that might be a great entry point for people that maybe know this band, but they're a little intimidated by checking it out or they think they might be annoyed by Animal Collective. I think I think Feels is like a really good gateway for people. 
Yeah, I think that, and also, but um, you know, and for people who like, lo- you know, like uh, Meriwether Post Pavilion, I, w- I would recommend like stepping back to Strawberry Jam as well. Like that one's definitely abrasive, but I think that it can, it's it's sort of like Meriwether Post Pavilion without like maybe being as overexposed. So I think that's that's like a record that's been kind of um, put. Like it's seen as the one between feels and Meriwether Post. Um, also, like the um, Fall Be Kind EP that followed uh, Meriwether Post Civilian. What would I want? Sky, I think, had the first uh, cleared Grateful Dead sample of any like rock song. So, I mean, that was a big deal at the time. Um, but yeah, I'd say that like uh, I don't like I I think every time they release a new project because they've released a lot of music, be it live albums, soundtracks, etc. Um, like painting with like in 2016, like I just, that to me was just so depressing to behold because you would just see like all these like billboards around silver, like when I lived there and it just seemed to like, it, I just never thought I could hear like a really phoned in animal collective album. And, you know, it just remind me of like when the Flint, when, you know, after the, um, after what were those records uh yoshimi with like the flaming lips how they sort of became like a little like how like they kind of phoned in and it made me think like is it a is it possible for animal collective to like become back in the good graces of people who you know care about like you know the the indie rock press and like what would that record sound like and i keep coming back to like something like flaming lips embryonic where they just like made a really raw, chaotic, like got rid of the whole pop, I like the whole pop uh, sound, and just like just really got back to something grimy like Ark. I mean, what what do you a do you think Animal Collective could do that? And B, what would it even sound like? You I know? I definitely think they could do that. You know, my sense of those of those guys is that they've you know stayed committed to making music. Yeah, I I wonder if maybe just working as a collective was not really yeah. exciting them at that time, but I could definitely see them making a comeback. And I think you're right on with uh, that prescription for a comeback. Just to get back to the weird roots, but also combining it with really catchy songs. I mean, I think that is the sweet spot for Animal Collective where uh, you want the weirdness, but then you want those unexpected bursts of melody that just come out of the murk mm. and lift your spirit. You know, And, and I think... When they can do that, um, you know, that's as as exciting and, and exhilarating as indie music from that time gets, I think. All right, we've now reached the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? So, you know, Steve, as... You've heard many, 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 many people talk about on Twitter and online, just in general. It's been a huge year for Florida emo. I mean, it's like when we look back on 2021, that's going to be the thing. Bands like, you know, uh, Snacking and uh, Camp Trash, uh, you know, in spite of the fact that Fest almost certainly won't happen, although it is take does take place in Florida, so they tend to be lax with masks. Um, but you know, it's, it, it's almost like there's an emo revival revival happening with this early 2010s sound of being kind of beery and anthemic. And, uh, there's a band called home is where, uh, that is from Florida that is releasing this EP that I've been very excited about for a while called I became birds. Um, and the interesting thing about them to me is that they do have the components of like, uh, Florida emo where it's just like really fist pumping and like shotgunning a six pack of paps all at the same time. Uh, You know, elements of like hot water music or Joyce Manor. But what this band does that's interesting to me is it gets into more of like the surrealism of cap and jazz. Like the lyrics are just almost animal collective, like in the way they um, have this vivid imagery that might not be particularly sense, like sensical. Also the first, uh, song is called L. Ron Hubbard was way cool. So they have that kind of self-deprecating humor uh, that I love about emo music. And 
Um, yeah, it's for this past year, a lot of the best records from this realm have been EPs, which may, which may lead them to getting less attention. Similar to the album I talked about last week, Arm's Length, similar to one I talked about before, For Your Health, which is 17 minutes. Um, Home is Where, uh, it's kind of a tough pan to Google, but uh, yeah, keep your eyes peeled like on emo Twitter today. There will be a lot of people posting about it. I can't recommend this one highly enough. So the band I'm going to be talking about, this choice is somewhat inspired by Animal Collective because this is also a collective. And this is like a collective in a real sense because there's like been dozens of people that have been in this group over the years. Uh, they're called Sunburn Hand of the Man. They're a band from Massachusetts. They've been putting out records since the late 90s. And again, yeah, if you look at their Wikipedia page, it's like their list of, of uh, past members is like dozens of people long. And they've also put out a ton of albums, uh, many of them uh, limited edition uh, CDRs. Uh, so their music can be kind of hard to track down, but I think they're about to get some of their best exposure that they've had in, in quite some time. Uh, next week, they're putting out a record called Pick a Day to Die, uh, being put out by a really good indie label called Three Low Bed. And you can actually go on the Three Low Bed Recordings Bandcamp page uh, to check out a couple songs from this record. Again, that's three... Uh, then Lobed, L-O-B-E-D. And this record, I would recommend anyone, if you wish that the Grateful Dead sounded more like Sonic Youth or Can, you will like this band. Because they have that um, improvisational feel, very experimental, but um, not really coming at it from, you know, like a folk or a uh, blues-based direction. It is much more, again, of that, like, krautrock influence, a lot of noise influence, but it's also pretty spacey and psychedelic and goes off in all kinds of different directions. There's, like, one song on this record that, like, actually sounds a little bit like thrash metal. You know, it's it's, it's really (laughs) unpredictable. It's a really... It's a really cool record. Uh, I like it a lot. It comes out next week. Again, it's called Pick a Day to Die. Uh, check out the Bandcamp page. You can hear a couple songs uh, before it comes out, uh, before you pick it up on March 12th. This is a band that I've, like, I hear a lot of people, I like, you know, I feel like Riley Walker tweets about this band every other day. Um, yeah, this is a band that's, like, always been super interesting to me, like, as a fellow traveler of, like, Animal Collective and bands like that. But uh, it's just so hard to know where to start. <laughs> yeah, I think this will be a good record for a lot of people to get into them. Uh, it's a pretty accessible record, and it's uh, definitely going to be available to people. So definitely check that out when it drops next week. Thank you all for listening uh, to this episode of IndieCast. We'll be back with more reviews and news and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box.